It's a very human experience sometimes that the very same thing that makes you happy uh, can also make you sad at exactly the same time. Last year, Sue and Stuart and I had a camping holiday in Western, in sorry, Central Australia, uh, where years ago, as a whole family, we'd been there, Ayers Rock, Alice Springs. The, I love the centre, and I was really looking forward to this. And it turned out to be a wonderful holiday. But every now and then on the holiday, I just couldn't help feeling sad that our girls weren't with us this time. Uh, their uni break didn't line up and they weren't able to make it. So as great as the holiday was, and it was, it was a lovely holiday, I just couldn't help also being sad at the same time. If, if only the girls were here this time. But it was a wonderful holiday. But it's funny how sometimes you can be both happy and sad at exactly the same time. That is exactly where the Apostle Paul is at, at the beginning of this passage. It's what sets off this whole next section in the book of Romans. See, look at how chapter 9 started. Verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. They are remarkable words given what Paul has just written in the previous chapter. Okay, now it's been a week break for us, so we miss the effect of it. But do you remember last week? Remember chapter 8? It was full of wonderful stuff about how those in Christ Jesus are God's own children, how we have God's own spirit, how we were co-heirs with Jesus Christ for a new creation to come. We are more than conquerors. And it all finished on that massive high note at the end of the chapter about how neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and it was all so exuberant and so triumphant and yet within two verses Paul says I'm in great sorrow unceasing anguish it's as if at the celebration of chapter 8 Paul can't help but also be sad because of those who aren't at the celebration if only Israel were here because his own race, his own brothers, the people of it, they're not. If you've been following along in Romans, you'll know that through Jesus, you don't have to be a Jew anymore in order to be one of God's people. And the law and the old covenants, they've all been superseded. They've all been moved on from because of Jesus. And so as a nation now, national Israel, national Israel are not co-heirs with Christ. National Israel are not more than conquerors. National Israel are not in Christ. And Paul is brokenhearted about it. Maybe you can relate to that. People in your life, people you love, who aren't Christians. Maybe it's a brother or maybe it's a sister, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your mum or your dad. Maybe it's people you've been praying for for years, but they don't love Jesus. And it scares you because what does that mean for their eternity? Paul knows exactly how you feel. And out of that, he has some very important things to tell us about God. 
Because Paul may well be sad about Israel's predicament, but he does not want that to cause any confusion over what God is like. And in particular, in today's passage, chapter 9 and 10, he wants to tell us two things about God that we need to be especially clear on. The first being, the mess of Israel, the predicament that they're in, does not mean that God's word has failed. Verse 6. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, this is a key verse for setting up the rest of the passage, so it's worth spending a bit of time just to understand what's going on here. It's not as though God's word has failed. In other words, Israel may well be cut off from Christ now, but that's not because God has gone back on his word. It's not because God is unable to achieve what he has said in his word. Because you'd be excused for thinking that. I mean, all through the Old Testament, Israel were God's special people. In verses 4 and 5, Paul lists off just how blessed they were, how privileged they were. So what's gone wrong? Why are they now cut off? Uh, Can't God finish what he started? Well, no, it's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who were descended from Israel are Israel. Now, that can sound a little confusing, I know, but the thing to understand is that the first Israel in that sentence refers to the person Israel in the Old Testament. The man Jacob, who in the book of Genesis, God renamed as Israel. So when Paul says not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, he's saying that not all the descendants of Jacob turned out to be Israel. And in saying that, he is introducing the idea that it has always been God's plan to only choose a portion. Out of all the descendants of Israel, it's always been his plan to only choose a portion to be his people. And he goes on and he gives examples of exactly that happening. Like with Abraham, verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. See, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But God only chose for his people to come from Isaac's descendants. And even then the same thing happened with Isaac's descendants. He had two sons, they were called Esau and Jacob, and again God only chose for his people to come from one of them, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children, that's uh, Isaac's uh, wife, had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand... Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, you following this? National Israel may now well be cut off from Christ, which upsets Paul no end, but it's not because God's word has failed, because it's never been God's word that every descendant of Abraham would be God's people. God has always only ever chosen a portion within the descendants to be his people. Not all who descended from Israel are Israel. So God's word has not failed. Mind you, he's just opened a massive can of worms to prove it, hasn't he? God chooses people. In fact, verse 11, he's very emphatic about it. God chooses people before they're born before they've even done anything good and bad, in order that his purpose in election, selection, might stand. 
Hmm. In fact, last week, back in chapter 8, I just let it go through the keeper last week, but back in chapter 8, verse 30, Paul even used the P word that God predestines people. Ephesians 1 that Al opened with talked about that twice. Friends, we've got to be clear about this. Paul is not not describing a passive God who simply chooses people by looking into the future to see how they will turn out and then he picks the ones who will turn out okay. That's not what he's talking about. There's a word for that. That's called foreknowledge. The Apostle Paul knows that word. He also used that word last week as well. But he also went one step further and he's talking about a God who calls people and predestines people. He's talking about a God who selects people, picks people, chooses people and then he proactively determines how those people will turn out so that his purpose in the election might stand. Hmm. Now, this is a bit of deep water, isn't it? A lot of people don't like this. Doesn't that make us just puppets? We, we, don't, have any free, we don't have any real choice? And doesn't it sound unfair? Why does God choose some people but not others? And what about those he doesn't choose? It's not their fault that God doesn't predestine them, surely. This sounds very unjust. Well, if you've ever wondered about those sorts of things, here is no less an authority than the Apostle Paul himself to answer that exact question. Because having defended the fact that God's word has not failed because his purposes have always been to choose some people but not others, he now goes on to defend the fact that God chooses some people and not others. Verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my, my, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. In response to the question of whether God is unjust in choosing some people but not others, Paul's first response is not to back away from it one iota. If anything, he takes a step forward and emphasises God's sovereignty in the whole matter. God is God, we're not, he can do whatever he wants. And he even goes to the illustration of Pharaoh in Exodus that we looked at earlier this year, where where we're told that God proactively hardened Pharaoh's heart and proactively saved Israel so as to prove, in this case for Paul, God can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he can harden whoever he wants to harden. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, well then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why do you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble uses and some for common uses? Paul's effectively telling us, mind your own business, it's not up to us to question what God does. Verse 22, what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the purposes of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Again, he's basically saying, what if God wants to do it that way? 
Not up to you to question him. He's, he's not accountable to us. Hmm. Sounds like he's being a bit of a hard hitter, isn't it? But he's got a point, okay? Who are we to tell God how to run things? Who are we to tell God how to save people? It's actually the epitome of a sinful, proud nature to think that we know better than God and that he has to measure up to what we think is fair. It's actually really helpful for Paul to be telling us this. Because in the end, I'm thinking it's pretty clear that predestination, election, selection, choosing, calling, whatever you want to, however you want to label it, seems pretty clear to me that it's in the Bible. You've got to work real hard not to see it in today's passage. And we've got to tread really carefully. And we have to listen humbly to God for him to tell us what he's like rather than insist he be what we want him to be. He is God. Mind you, after saying all this, Paul now does a very interesting thing. Because after all these verses about God's word not failing, because he's only ever chosen a portion within Israel to be his people anyway, and how that's not unjust because he's God after all, after all of that, he now starts to talk about Israel's responsibility and how it's Israel's fault that they've been rejected. See, look at the end of the chapter, chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, this is intriguing. Why is national Israel rejected by God? Well, it's because national Israel rejected Jesus. There in verse 32, the stone which Israel stumbled over, that is a very, very common New Testament reference to Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus. They couldn't bring themselves to follow Jesus. They couldn't accept the sort of Messiah that Jesus was. They didn't think they needed mercy because, in verse 32, they, they wanted to pursue righteousness by works. They thought they could earn it. So why has Israel stumbled? Well, it's their own fault. It's not so much now that God didn't choose them. It's that they didn't choose God. And this line of argument runs right through the whole next chapter. Look at how chapter 10 starts. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Again, you see, Israel wrongly put their faith in their own works, their own efforts. They sought to establish their own righteousness. That doesn't save anyone. Salvation is by trusting in what Jesus has done. And then just in fact, that if the first eight chapters haven't been clear enough, in chapter 10, Paul now repeats that entire message. Chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Look at verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will be never put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, what I want you to notice is this is fascinating. After all those verses about people not being saved because God hadn't called them, Paul is now talking about people not being saved because they didn't call on him, which was exactly Israel's problem. They've always been guilty of that. And so chapter 10, just for closure, it finishes out with a whole range of Old Testament passages to show that Israel have always been guilty of rejecting God. Uh, look, for example, at the very last verse of the chapter, verse 21. It's a quote uh, from Isaiah. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, I want you to think about this. On the one hand, where have we come from? On the one, on the one hand, in chapter 9, you've got all these classic statements about the potter and the clay and all that sort of stuff. You've got unambiguous statements of God's sovereign election regarding Israel. And right next to it, in the very next chapter, it's all about Israel being responsible. And it's all their own fault. And so side by side you have election and the realness of God choosing people over against right next door to human responsibility and the realness of people choosing God. And that we're not puppets, we're real people with genuine liberty to make real choices for which we will be held accountable. Now is there a tension between those things? Yeah. Is it hard to reconcile in our heads how God's sovereignty over our choices, how does that fit together with the realness of us being able to make choices? Is that hard? Of course it's hard to fit together. And and look, at this point, while I was writing the talk, I had a few illustrations to help try and resolve that tension, but in the end I just threw them out because they were going to take us too much time. And I can confidently predict that nothing I say is going to completely remove that tension for you. I can only point out that both things, God's election of us and and our human responsibility, both those things are unashamedly taught in the Bible. And because we're not God, I'm not sure we're ever going to be really able to totally reconcile them in our minds. And I'm not thinking that's necessarily a bad thing. Because you can't really expect... I mean, you can't really expect to fully comprehend the workings of the God of all the universe, can you? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that if I can really fully understand everything about how God does things, if I can get my head completely around what he does and how he does it, that's going to make God awfully small. Way too small to be able to run this universe very well. And anyway, just because we can't know everything about God... That does not cancel out what we can know about him. For an example, just between you and me, I don't always fully understand my wife Sue. (laughs) For the life of me, I cannot understand how Sue can enjoy spending so much time in fabric shops like Spotlight. I can't begin to get my head around how Sue can operate each day with so many to-do lists and notes all over the place. There are, there are aspects to Sue, the way she does things, that I just cannot comprehend. But I know without a shadow of a doubt, she loves me.
Yeah. And there will be aspects to God and how he does things that we cannot possibly hope to understand. And we can know without a shadow of a doubt that he loves us. And we can also know without a shadow of a doubt from this chapter, he chooses people. He elects people. And yet our choices are still real. And they matter. And when you roll all of that back into what triggered this whole section in the first place, I think we're left with a, with a challenge and a comfort. Because remember, what, what triggered this whole thing? Paul's sad about Israel. He's sad about people not being Christians. Maybe you feel that sadness in your own life. Maybe at this very minute you got someone in your mind that you love deeply and they're not a Christian. The challenge of a passage like today's is that our choices are real. It matters enormously that the person you love rejects Jesus. And we do everything in our power, therefore, to urge them to follow Jesus. Because choices are real. And it matters that we share the gospel with them. It matters that you keep talking to them. It matters that you keep inviting them to things. It matters that we equip ourselves as best as we are able to explain Jesus as clearly as possible. It matters because, chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how's someone going to call on the name of the Lord if no one tells them about the Lord in the first place? As Paul says in the very next verse, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Friends, the challenge of a chapter like this is to have beautiful feet and to, make, and to take the good news to those people God has placed in our lives because our choices are real and they and we will be held accountable for the choices we make and the things we do. But the comfort of today's passage is that God is sovereign, utterly sovereign. And so if those people in your life who aren't Christian, if they're one of God's elect, they will be saved in God's timing. So keep praying for them, keep talking to them, keep inviting them to things, because no matter how resistant they might seem, and no matter how you might feel you're not getting anywhere with them, God's election purposes will not be blocked. His word does not fail. So be confident by that. And if you're not quite sure how it all fits, how God's choice of us fits together with our choice of him, that's okay. A God that we can fully understand, that's not much of a God. I'll pray. Father, help us to struggle with these things. Help us to come before you and your word with humility, to be uh, 
shaped and changed by it. Help us to wrestle with the meaning of your word in these passages where sometimes it's hard to fit it all together in our head. But Father, we pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would change us so that we would have a real sense of urgency and desire to talk to those in our lives who don't yet know you about you. But Father, also fill us with a comfort that you are sovereign, utterly sovereign. Amen.